thought it would be good this morning for a few minutes to actually talk about baptism, seeing as it's timely. Uh, you know, we've had one, and um, it's not a subject that is overly talked about. But I thought very important to explain why, as Christians, we are baptised. And um, there will be people here today who haven't been baptised, and it'll be good for you to think about this. There'll be other people who've been baptised in the past, and it'll be good for you to understand uh, why you were baptised. And also, it's the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to make disciples and baptise them. So it's every Christian's uh, need to understand what baptism is, because it's something you need to encourage others to do. You need to be able to talk to people about it. So whether you have or haven't been baptised, it's still a helpful subject for you. Now, usually what happens is when we talk about baptism in church, we go to the New Testament, we dig up the Apostle Paul, and uh, we read various things that are said there about baptism. Today, we're going to go to the Old Testament and talk about baptism. So we're going to do the non-standard thing. And um, the reason we're going to do that is because the early church didn't have a New Testament. And... Um, we often forget this. We often forget that the early Christians didn't have a New Testament. We have a New Testament, but when they were first you know, following Jesus, there was no New Testament. They only had an Old Testament, and it turns out that everything you need to be a solid Christian is found in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is everywhere there to be found if you would look for him. And the early believers found everything they needed there, and then what they proceeded to do was write about it, and that's why we have a New Testament. The New Testament actually helps us to understand the Old Testament, but everything is there in the Old. And I thought this morning we are going to go and dig into the Old Testament and we're going to find three examples of baptism in the Old Testament and what the three things are we can learn from them today. Baptism is a bit random if you think about it. Someone going into water and coming out, you'd say, why? What's the meaning of that? Why would God pick something random, like getting wet. Um, but the Lord has his reasons and there's purpose in it all. And so we're going to go dig now into the Old Testament. I'm going to start first of all with Matthew 28, which is the famous Great Commission. And we're going to read verses 18 to 20. And this is pretty much Jesus's final words before leaving earth. Because <laughs> he never actually left earth. He did say he was with us always. But his final parting instructions were these. Verse 16, well, well, let's read 16 to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is a great, our final uh, commission, because it's not the first commission. The first commission Jesus gave us is to love one another, and that's not just here within the congregation, that's loving God's fellow people, loving fellow Christians, loving the other churches. That's our first, most important job. But this is the Great Commission, which is like our second most important job, reaching out to those who don't know the love of God 
so that they can be included as well, baptising them and teaching them what the Lord requires so that they can follow him too. So I've often thought baptism seemed a bit random. I don't know about you, but it's often seemed to me a bit of a strange thing to suddenly decide all your followers must do. You know, why would God decide that all of his followers have to be immersed in a tank of water? Now, I know some people have shortened it to sprinkling. That's fine in my mind, um, as long as the heart intention is right. <laughs> so I'm personally okay with that because it does say in Ephesians there's only one baptism. So when I meet a fellow believer who's a uniting church, that's, you know, a Methodist believer, or, you know, an Anglican or from various churches, and they were baptised in their way of doing it, but they love the Lord, I still count them as having been properly baptised, and I accept them. One baptism into Christ. But for me personally, when I look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament examples we're about to look at, for me, if you were to do it like the proper way, so to speak, if there was a proper way, it's definitely an immersion thing. We see it in the Old Testament. And, um, but... Very, very important to have a big heart towards all believers, even if they were baptised in a different way to you. So if I was to ask you the question, where in the Bible is the first baptism, where would that be? <laughs> it's a kind of a trick question. And um, most people don't get it. Most people, when they're trying to pick it, they, most people would say, oh, Jesus is baptism. You know, in Matthew chapter 3, they would say that's the first baptism. John the Baptist, you know, was baptising people. That was kind of the first baptism. No, it's definitely older than that. The first baptism in the Bible is actually when the children of Israel went through the Red Sea. You don't think of that as a baptism because you're thinking of baptism like as one individual person going into the water and coming out. But in that example, a whole nation of people or a whole group of people goes into the water collectively and they come out collectively and we never noticed that that was a baptism because the word baptism just really wasn't used in the story. But we find that it's later in the New Testament that Paul is talking about it and he points back to it and says, they were baptised. So it's in the Old Testament, but we've learned about it because the New Testament explained it to us. So we are going to read those few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1, 2, 3 and 4. And Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. So the first baptism in the Bible that we know of, at least the first one that... that seems obvious to me, is like this baptism of the whole bunch of Israelites when they came out of Egypt. It was like a group baptism. And they didn't even know they were being baptised. You know, they wouldn't have realised that at the time. But God has put all these stories in the Bible for us to discover and learn from. So it's quite remarkable that it's there. Now I imagine, as an Israelite going through that experience, that there would be something very unifying about it like we were, we were just listening to Carl a few minutes ago talking about how going on this mission trip with these other people, how wonderful it was feeling close to those people. You know, there's something about going through an experience with other people that draws you closer to them. That's what happens. 
as the Israelites went through the experiences they went through, they were being formed into a nation. This is what we see it. And then, of course, the, the official moment where they became a nation was Mount Sinai, when the law got handed down. That's kind of like the official moment. But the whole process, including this baptism, is kind of like a, a process of forming their identity as who they were. And um, so you imagine that you've been in Egypt, you've been a slave, you go through all those processes of the plagues, Moses comes, you're being delivered, you get to the Red Sea, that would, that would have been the most terrifying of all the moments. You know, the, uh, the Egyptian army is there about to attack, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, or it's between an army and the ocean, and there's no, seems to be no escape, but the Lord delivers you, and you go through that baptismal process, and you come out the other side, and you celebrate on the other side. Boy, do they celebrate on the other side. And it just goes to show there are times when you can celebrate over the death of your enemies. In that story, that's what they did. We can celebrate over the defeat of Satan. That's a complete worthy thing to celebrate. And they were baptised, and in the process they became a part of a national identity. They their identity as a group was formed. The point that I'm trying to make about this is when someone is baptised, you get added into the group. You get added into the church. Your identity as just an individual person is changed so now your identity is merged with the identity of God's people. You become a Christian. You become like those people, they were slaves, but they f went through a process where they were formed into the nation of Israel. It was an identification process. And they didn't know it at the time, but we see it in hindsight when we look back that they were baptized into Moses, but they became basically an Israelite. They became a part of the nation. They became a part of what God was doing. And when I look back on that and I contemplate it, and then lots of biblical experts say that that was the first baptism. And I realise as a Christian, when a Christian is baptised, when you are baptised, what you're saying is, I am a Christian. I am a part of God's people. I am a part of his Israel, so to speak, the church. So it's a, it's a identifi identification process. It's a changing of your identity. You're no longer you. You are now a Christian. You're now a part of God's church. You're now a part of God's people. You could say, some people might say it's like an initiation ceremony. That's kind of crude language, but it is something like that. You become identified with Christ. Paul even uses that language later on in Romans. You know, you've... When you go into the water, it's like you're identifying with Christ's death. When you come out of the water, you're identifying with Christ's resurrection. So you're now identifying with Christ. So when you become baptised, you are. You're identifying with Christ, but you're also now becoming a part of his nation, which is his Israel, which is the church. And you can proudly say, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian. So that's the first baptism that we see in the Bible. It's a corporate, it's a corporate identity thing. So when you're baptised, you become a part of God's people. And this is very, very interesting because all around the world, in non-Western cultures, so think, for example, like an Arab culture, like Muslim people, they, when a, when a, a Muslim 
person becomes a believer in Christ, they're very careful about when they get baptized. I don't know if you're aware of this, because there's something about that moment of being baptized that says to all the other, all the other Muslim folk, they're a real Christian now. So there are a lot of what they call Muslim background believers, MBBs. There are a lot of people in that category that put their baptism off for years because they're, they're actually afraid of making that identification. In their heart, they follow Christ. They've come to see Jesus is the way. They follow Jesus, but they're afraid of being baptised because there's an identification that takes place right there. And they know as soon as they identify with Christ like that, there'll be persecution. And they're scared of the persecution. Who wouldn't be? So, but there are Muslim, Muslim background believers who take that step. They say, no, I'm following Christ. He said to do it. I'm going to obey. And they, they know I risk potential you know, ostracism from my family. They risk a lot of things, but they go ahead and take that step of baptism. It's an identification thing. Now you're a Christian. So baptism is important to do because it's an identification thing and it's important for you to know where you belong, but it's also important because other people look at it. It's very public. So our baptism that we had today with Bithia was very public and baptism is like that. It's a, it's a statement not only to yourself about who you are, it's a statement to others about who you are as well. It's very public. In other cultures in the world, like in Asian cultures, there's a lot of... Uh, collective thinking in their culture. So they think um, very much in terms of group identity. So for them, our dear Filipino uh, friends here this morning would understand this. And so I remember in, um, you know, doing some studies and was reading, I did a subject called cross-cultural communication and they were talking about how you present the gospel in other countries and things like this. And the guy that I was listening to was saying that in a certain culture that he was at, which was in Africa, he said when they get baptised, that is their way of accepting Jesus Christ. Like, say, for us, we would say, give your heart to Jesus, and we would ask you to pray a prayer and surrender your life, and for us, that's accepting Jesus. And later on, you get baptised as a kind of, like, you know, affirming your decision sort of a thing. But no, in a lot of cultures... The baptism is the way that you accept Jesus Christ because they, because they think collectively, they think that that's your decision to join the group. And that's how... So, you know, we, for example, we would have an altar call in a culture like that and we would say, come forward and get baptised. That would be your way of becoming a Christian. And you wouldn't know anything about what baptism meant. You'd learn about it later. But you just know that this is what I have to do to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's found in lots of cultures around the world that's okay too. And that's the reason why I don't think you have to know everything about baptism to be baptised. Because if, if, you're call, if you feel a sense of calling to come and follow the Lord, you can do it either way around. You can just say, I want to be baptised because I want to be a believer. Sure, let's do that. Let's baptise you and then you can learn what it all means later. Or if you want to do it the way Bithia did it and learn about it and understand it, do that too. Either way is fine. But in lots of cultures, that is the way they do it. And I think it's fine. It's wonderful for the Lord to be able to work in different cultures, however it works for them. So baptism is, first of all, an identification thing. And it's definitely a statement that says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a part of his nation, which is the church. 
The second baptism in the Old Testament is a surprising one, and it's found in the book of Leviticus of all places, and it's in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, and it doesn't use the baptism like all the other places. And it's, it's the chapter which describes the ordination of priests. So in this chapter, um, you know, God was telling Moses what to do, you know, when a priest was going to get set up to be a priest. And they started out with Aaron, and then it was his sons, and then later on it was other priests. The Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread without yeast. Gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and, assemb and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to the assembly, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them in water. So there's this, you can read the book of Leviticus, this chapter 8. It's pretty dreary reading. Um, we did the Bible videos. We went through the book of Leviticus, and yeah, the whole book is dry until you study it. Once you study it, it comes alive. This particular chapter of Leviticus was all about the ordination of the high priest. There's about 14 things in this chapter which connect exactly to Jesus. Like Jesus is our high priest. Jesus went into the Jordan River and got baptised. Like all the things that this chapter here focuses on matches over to Jesus very, very amazingly. Go and watch my Leviticus 8 chapter for more on that. Um, but here we've got the story in the Old Testament where the high priest is baptised. It uses the word washed. But the very first part of him becoming a priest to serve the Lord is this baptism. And then all the other priests were also baptised before they would serve so it seems like it's pretty clear to me that you weren't going to serve the Lord until you were made clean, so to speak, or prepared to serve the Lord. There was a process in which you, which you had to be, in the Old Testament way, ceremonially clean, and then that was your first step before you would serve the Lord. There was a few other steps they went through there as well. I just want to say, we know from the New Testament, of course, that every single Christian is a priest. And we've said this many, many times. It's in um, places like Peter's letter. He says, you are a holy priesthood. You are, or he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, he says things like that. So every person who says they're going to follow the Lord, in God's mind, they're a priest. If you think Catholic priest, you've got it wrong. Not priest like that. A priest in the sense that you're someone that's going to serve the Lord by doing what he wants. And so you're going to serve God by ministering to people, because that's what priests did. And you're going to serve people by bringing them to the Lord. That's what priests did as well. So you serve people by bringing them to the Lord through prayer and other stuff like that. You serve the Lord by doing whatever he says and bringing his words to people. Priests do both of those things and Christians are supposed to be like that. And when a person gets baptised, they may not have even known it, but they're taking the first step of ordination as priests. When you are baptised, you're becoming a priest in the service to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, I am here to serve you. Isn't that interesting? Just like in the Old Testament, how those priests were baptised so that they could serve God, when you're baptised, you're saying, here I am, I'm ready to serve. Very, very cool. 
And if you've been one of those priests, now imagine the Old Testament priest, imagine Aaron going through that process, and as soon as he'd been through the process and gotten ready, then sat down and said, ah, I don't feel like doing it. <laughs> well, that's not what he was supposed to do. He was, he was supposed to be ordained and prepared for the job so he could do the job. There was only one high priest, of course, but there were lots of regular priests. And, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus is our high priest, and we are all the other priests. And we're all supposed to serve him. We're not supposed to sit down and do nothing. And, you know, when they had those special festivals in Israel and all the people would turn up and they all were going to sacrifice, they say Passover, imagine how many lambs were sacrificed for Passover. A lot. Well, you need all those priests, right? <laughs> that have to get busy sacrificing all those lambs. Well, as priests who serve our Lord, there's a lot of work to do. You can't expect the three or four pastors in the church to do it all. It's not possible. You couldn't expect Aaron to do all the work for the whole community. You know, no, you're all priests. There's a lot of work to do. There are a lot of people out there that need to know about Christ and you're supposed to represent God to them. And you're supposed to represent them to God as well by bringing them before him in prayer. You're supposed to be busy about the job of being priests and um, not lazy. Well, when you're baptised, you're saying, here I am, ready to serve. The third baptism in the Old Testament is the baptism of Naaman. Now, there may be others. I was sitting there this week trying to think, where are all the Old Testament baptisms that I can recall to mind? And these are the three that I thought of. I'm sure there are others, and there are probably lots more things we can learn about baptism. But the third and the really obvious one was the baptism of Naaman. Of course, it didn't use the word baptism there either. Do you all know the story of Naaman? Does anyone not know the story of Naaman? Because I won't read the whole story if I don't have to. I'll summarise it very quickly. Naaman was not even an Israelite. He was a Syrian Remember, remember how the Israelites had this funny idea that only they were God's chosen people and God didn't, couldn't really love anyone else that wasn't from Israel. People from other places, they were like anathema. You know, you really see it clearly with the Pharisees in the New Testament, but it was there all along. It doesn't make sense actually because there's so many scriptures that talk about how Israel was supposed to be a blessing to other people. There's whole entire Psalms which, which say things like, May the nations bless the Lord. The nations, of course, are all the Gentiles. You know, Isaiah, my house is to be a, a house of prayer for all nations, for Gentiles. It's supposed to be a place where the Gentiles would come to pray. In other words, they're allowed to come and pray. But it's also a place where they would pray for the Gentiles. Well, all the, the whole Old Testament's so full of it, but they didn't see it. So you've got this bloke who's a non-Israelite, and he's anathema. This is Naaman. And he gets leprosy. Now, leprosy today, I don't know what we would compare leprosy to, but some terrible, horrible disease that's like super contagious, maybe Ebola. Let's compare. Ebola is a kind of a bit more fast-acting than leprosy, but leprosy would take years to act on a person and their skin would turn terrible and they would eventually die from it. This leprosy is curable these days. It's called Hansen's disease. They've discovered cures for it, or at least medication that can contain it, so it's not like the terrible problem it used to be. If you want to hear a great story about leprosy, it's the story of Father Damien, Saint Damien, who was a Catholic priest, went to the island of Molokai, which is one of the islands in Hawaii, and they had just designated this whole entire island as a leper colony. 
And any time anyone got leprosy, just stick them on that island as, you know, let them live out their days. And Father Damien felt the call of the Lord to go to Molokai, gave his entire life to those folks, started a church there, ended up catching leprosy and dying from it himself, which is why I guess he's become Saint Damien in the minds of many people. Great, great story, but that disease of leprosy was so horrible, it would kill you slowly over a long period of time. And um, when people got leprosy, you just didn't want to be near them because of you know, how bad it was. If someone, you know, if someone had Ebola and they walked in the door right now, and we all knew they had Ebola, we would be vacating the building. Like, it's that serious. You don't want to catch it. And um, imagine how the poor person feels. You know, imagine that person that's got that disease, they're just ostracised, they're seen as like ghastly, you want to get away from them, no friends, no family. Um, but I'm sure there's sympathy, but they would have had no chance to feel any sympathy because they wouldn't have been around people to feel it. Terrible. And, uh, we, you know, we see stories in the Bible where Jesus healed lepers and those stories are way more wonderful than what we realise. The compassion of Jesus for those people is beyond anything we understand when we read the stories. So here's this guy who's a non-Israelite. So he, in other words, he's the least deserving and he gets leprosy and leprosy in the Bible is a picture or a symbol of sin. I don't know if you knew that. But sin is this disease. Sin is a disease of the heart that kills you. It's contagious because every single person you contact, you come in contact with, your sin will affect them and their sin will affect you. Sin's like that. Sin is the most horrible, insidious thing that infects the life of a person so completely and it will kill them. In fact, it, it already kills them the minute it has them but then it will eventually send them to their second death, which is hell. It's a horrible disease, and leprosy is the perfect thing to symbolise sin. It's just that we don't have much appreciation for how terrible leprosy was. But here's a guy that has it, and he wants to be cured. And he hears that there's a prophet in Israel that can cure, you know, that has miraculous powers. This is Elisha the prophet. Basically, the story is, is this. He sends a message... He, or he goes to get the cure. Elisha says to him, you've got to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He doesn't want to dip in the Jordan River because it's a dirty, nasty river. And the rivers back in his country of Syria were way nicer. And by the way, I googled that. The rivers in Syria may have been nicer in the past. They're terrible now. Um, the Jordan River is way nicer now. Those rivers in Syria are full of like floating bottles of Coke and all sorts of stuff. Horrible. And um, so, yeah, they would have been nicer in the past, but... This guy, his servant says to him, look, does it matter what river you dip in? You've got a terrible disease, just dip in the river. And he sees common sense, which he goes to the Jordan River, dips in it seven times, and his leprosy is gone. This is a picture to us of baptism. Because when we come to Christ, we dip ourselves into the Jordan, which, by the way, where was Jesus baptised? The Jordan. See, all the Bible has all these stories that all line up nicely. When he dipped, and seven times is the number of God, when he goes and takes a dip into Christ in the Jordan River, his leprosy is gone, his sin is washed away, that disease, which was going to kill him, doesn't kill him anymore. And sin, when we come into the waters of baptism with Christ, we identify with Christ in his death 
and that that thing which was going to kill us is gone. Now, I know the mercy of Christ is such that we come to the Lord even before we're baptised. You know, you can accept Jesus as your saviour and your sins will be washed away. But this is the picture that baptism is for us. So when we go into the waters of baptism, we're saying to ourselves, I was a sinner, but now in Christ I am righteous. So it's an identification thing as well. You're placing yourself firmly in the righteousness of Christ because you can't save yourself outside of Christ, outside of that baptism, outside of placing yourself into him, you've got leprosy of the soul and it's going to kill you. But you place yourself into Christ and your leprosy is washed away and now you're not you. Now you're in him and you're clean and you're righteous. It's a great story. You should go and read the the name story. It's 2 Kings 5 verses 1 through 19. And at the end of that story, Elisha says to Naaman, go in peace. And when we are baptised into the waters of... When we're baptised into Christ, the Lord says to us, go in peace. His peace is spoken over us. So when we are baptised, we say these things. We say, I'm a Christian. I'm a part of God's family, God's nation, the church. We say, I'm a priest. I'm here to serve him. And we say, I was a sinner but now I'm righteous in Christ. We say all of these things when we're baptised, so our identity is changed. And then, when we're baptised, the Lord says a few things about us too. And in Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, let's just read these five verses. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? I mean, it makes sense. You know, Jesus is perfect. He doesn't need to be baptised. But there was more going on in Jesus' baptism than what we think. Part of it was fulfilling the example of the high priest in the Old Testament with Aaron. But part of it was also what was about to happen to demonstrate to us what God says when we are baptised. I've already just told you what we say, what we declare, but it turns out that God declares a few things too. So... Jesus said, no, 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 I need to be baptised. Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and alight on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And it turns out that when you're baptised, God says a few things about you too. First of all, he declares you're his child. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my child, and I love you, and I am pleased with you. And that's the declaration of God over you. So we've got this whole series of declarations that go on in baptism, and they're very powerful. Your declaration of who you are, who you're going to be. And I noticed this morning... In Bithyas, she called it a proclamation, but it's a declaration, it's the same thing. And she said these types of things in her proclamation, very powerful. And that's what we say when we're baptised. We declare who we are, that we're going to follow God, we're going to serve him. And then the Lord says over us, you are my child, I love you, and with you I am pleased. And of course, 
His Holy Spirit is poured out upon us too. So baptism, it turns out, is super amazing, super wonderful, it's profoundly good. And if you were baptised and didn't know any of these things, that's okay, you know them now. The blessing is still real for you now. That's the best thing about God. He's a time-travelling God. He's, in, he's eternal. He's in all moments of time. And he, the meaning and the power of it will live for you now, even if you didn't know it at the time you were baptised. It's like when, you, when he went to the cross and he you know, gave his life for you and he, he paid for the forgiveness of sins, at that point you hadn't even committed a single one of your sins yet. So if you think about it, he forgave every single one of your sins, all the ones you've done up to this point and all the ones you haven't done yet. Because they were all in the future when Jesus died on the cross. You think that he's only forgiven you for the ones up to this point. No, he's forgiven you for all of them. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness for every sin, past and present and future. It's an amazing thing. And the power of baptism lives for you now even if you were baptised 50 years ago and didn't even know what it all meant at the time. So it's powerful. And I'd like you to say again this morning the declarations of baptism. I would like you to say to yourself, you know what, I am a Christian. I'm in Christ. I'm in the nation of God, the church. I am a priest. I am here to serve God. And I was a sinner, but now I am in Christ and righteous. And I speak to you the declarations of the Lord, that you're loved, he's pleased with you, and may the Holy Spirit fill you afresh this morning. I do wish I knew these things when I was baptised, but I'm glad I know them now. And you know, when people want to follow the Lord, we can explain these things to them. We explain what baptism means, and it will be much more meaningful for them going forward. I'm going to invite the band to come. We're going we're gonna to conclude with a song. What I want to do is just have a prayer. And I want to pray and bless you this morning with these blessings. But I want to also put it out there that if there's anyone here that has not been baptised, this is a step of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're someone that says to yourself, you know, I, I do want to follow Jesus, well, then you need to be baptised because that's what following Jesus means. That's the first thing you need to do. So there will be people here who haven't been baptised this morning. You need to seriously consider that the Lord is calling you to do that. And, um, but for the rest of us who have been baptised, we need to reaffirm to ourselves the meaning of these things. Within the, means of, within the sacraments, so you know there's a lot of discussion in churches about sacraments. There are, we all agree that there are two. We all agree that baptism and communion are sacraments. And um, some churches think there are more than two. And that's fine. They're, they're able to enjoy extra things as well. But we all agree there are two, baptism and communion. And the whole thing about the sacraments is that these are practices which Jesus instituted. These are not things that people made up. These are things that Jesus said to do. And they're sacra called sacraments because they're holy. The word sacred is in there, which means holy. So these are holy things to do that Jesus commanded. And so we, we, we realise that we do them out of obedience, but we also realise we do them because there's some power in them when we do them. Jesus knew it was important for us to do them, and that's why he told us. So we realise there's grace for us. 
Communion is something we do every single week. We receive grace regularly. But baptism is something you only do once. But the grace will live for you as long as it remains meaning, meaningful for you. So let us take a minute right now and pray and remind ourselves of the grace that we have received. So Lord, we thank you for baptism. Thank you that there's such a thing as being in Christ. And Lord, at the moment, temporarily at least, we're in the world with sin and the presence of evil all around us. But I thank you that even though that's the case just temporarily, we have been placed in Christ through our baptism. So in that regard, we've been taken out of the world and we've been put into a new place. Lord, you said we're a new creation and we're in the new creation. We're in the kingdom of God. We're in this new place because of our baptism. And so this morning, Lord, we thank you for the words of scripture and what they mean to us. I thank you, Lord, we've been made a part of the church, the body of Christ. I thank you, Lord, you've called us to serve and you've given us the great, wonderful gift of righteousness. And Lord, I pray now that you'd help us. Help us to serve. Help us to walk in righteousness and help us to make disciples of others. And Lord, I pray this morning for those who haven't been baptised in the congregation. And I pray that you would speak to their hearts and their minds, bring them to the place of obedience and surrender to you. And Heavenly Father, I ask that in this congregation at peace that there would be many baptisms in the months and the years ahead. I pray you give us grace that we would see the church grow and that we would have power with the gospel. And I also pray for the rest of the body of Christ in Rockhampton, for the other churches and the other ministers and our brothers and sisters. Lord, bless them and may there be many baptisms in their congregations as well. May they have fruit for Jesus Christ. May their congregations grow. May there be power in their lives at work for the sake of the Lord. So Father, this morning we lay at your feet our lives. Bless your people in Jesus' name. And we lay at your feet your church, your people. Bless your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.